1: We turn to Psalm 136 for our call to confession this morning, to confess our sins before God. I encourage you to turn there if you have a Bible handy, and we'll look at that psalm a bit this morning. Psalm 136, I'm going to read the first few verses and the last few verses. This is a traditional Thanksgiving-style hymn, and we're in the Thanksgiving season. So let's read from Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. And down to verse 23 it is he who remembered us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever, and rescued us from our foes for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. Thus far the reading of God's word. For the next three weeks, our calls to confession will focus on the theme of thanksgiving with that holiday coming up. uh, Just to confess a personal pet peeve of mine, our society loves to move right from Halloween to Christmas. It's great for sales, really, but not so much with thanksgiving. But we really need, as created people of God, to pause and thank God for what we have before we turn to think about what else we want or need. In in Psalm 136, we have a psalm that encourages us to do two things that we see in literally every verse. Every verse in this psalm has two things. The first line recounts something that God has done he made the worlds, he defeated Israel's enemies, and so on. And the psalmist is re- recounting the blessings God has given to his people. And the list goes on and on and on, 37, 36 items of, of, of thanksgiving, showering blessings that God has given. The second thing the psalm does is give us a way to voice our thanks. Uh, The second line of each verse is always the same, you notice. It gets quite repetitive as you read it uh, together. And it was probably meant for the congregation to respond and say that second line each time, just like we do in responsive readings. So here are two things that we have to confess. Uh, First, we don't stop to consider all God has done for us in a spirit of thankfulness, as the first line of each verse does. And sometimes, even if we do stop to think about it, We often don't voice our thanks in prayer to God or to others for their help in our lives. So let's confess our sins as we kneel before God. I encourage you to kneel if you're able, and pray for us today. skipping the last verse, we're we're, we're before the seasons of Reformation Day and Advent. It's always kind of a tricky time, sermon planning wise, it seems to me. Uh, So just just a short series here uh, between these times. Jonah is about God's sovereign mercy to the unexpected. Uh, Jonah is a fascinating book. Uh, People have written commentaries 20 times as long as the book itself. You can sit down and read Jonah in about 15, 20 minutes. It's fascinating, and yet it recaps the whole Bible in very interesting ways, four short chapters. So we're going to consider Jonah in three uh, sermons as well. The theme of this chapter one, uh, you can put this way, when we say no to God, God continues to call us and to correct us, and he sees his purpose accomplished anyway. Uh, That's a summary of these verses today. Uh, Jonah says no to God, and you see from the sermon title that uh, what happens when Christians say no to God? It's a very similar kind of pattern. So let's consider Jonah uh, as a book, as a person, uh, real briefly first. As I mentioned, it's a minor prophet, uh, this book, and don't forget that minor doesn't mean less important, right? We've got the major prophets and the minor prophets. Uh, that just refers to the length of the books. Right, Isaiah has 66 chapters it's, it's, and each of them is quite long twice as long as Jonah's chapters. Right, Jonah's just four short chapters so they call it minor because it's uh, less ink just less length is all not less important uh, we don't know much about Jonah himself the only other scripture we have is from 2 Kings 14 I'm not going to go there this morning but uh, that could be some homework for you if you find out what else Jonah did it's kind of a separate thing it's, it's uh, Mentioning it's, and it's commending Israel's king for shoring up their borders and for reestablishing Israel's national borders. So there was uh, a bit of a um, national d- defense, security kind of theme, you could even say. Uh, Jonah had a message of commending Israel's king for uh, putting some focus on national security. Very fascinating. It turns out that Nineveh was one of their enemies and one of the threats to that national security. So you have a very interesting paradox where God tells Jonah to say to Israel, way to go defending against your enemies militarily. And then here, God sends Jonah to one of those enemies to to, to send them to, uh, call them to repentance. So that's that's, uh, who Jonah was. It's about all we know. Uh, Jonah's different from all the other prophets. Uh, Most of the other prophets give us what the prophets say, right? The word of the Lord to Micah. And then the rest of the book is basically a quote. This is what God told me to say to you. That we here instead we get a story, uh, more like the Elisha and Elijah stories in the in the Book of Kings. So because of that, you get the sense right away this is going to be a different kind of book of, of prophet, and that's for sure. Jonah is often called the anti-prophet. He, he's the exact opposite of what the prophet's supposed to do. Go to Nineveh and say this. And Jonah goes the other way and says nothing. Jonah's the exact opposite of what a prophet should be. Well, that's about it as far as an introduction. There's more you could say, but we'll find out as we go along, as we go verse to verse. So the Lord says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Here we have Genesis 3. I said this recaps the whole Bible. Here's the first thing. God comes to Adam and he gives him a commission, a task right? Tend the garden, don't eat from that tree. There's his commission, right? And Adam rejects God. He doesn't keep that commission. Same here with Jonah. He receives a commission and doesn't do it. He he does the opposite. He's sent to Nineveh, which is an idolatrous city. Nineveh is in the Assyrian Empire, modern-day Iraq, way up north in Iraq, real close to Syria, Turkey, and Iran right, in all of those nations that we still consider kind of bad actors, right? That's the phrase we have in, in the news these days. They were bad actors back then, too. Nineveh was a wicked city. Just think of Las Vegas and Singapore and Amsterdam, kind of all combined, and you get the idea of Nineveh. Tawdry, pagan, ghettos, uh, and also, perhaps, like, like I mentioned, the military threat, uh, something like China or Russia to us today. they this big impending uh, threat out there just a few decades after Jonah Assyria uh, Nineveh being a major city in Assyria Assyria conquers Israel God allows them to come in and wipe out the 10 northern tribes this is the same people that will come in just a few short decades and wipe out Israel God sends them sends Jonah to this city to seek their repentance now, a couple of thoughts on this. One, this is um, a strong endorsement, right, in Scripture uh, on uh, international foreign missions, right? Here you have a call from God Himself to Israel, to, to an Israelite living in Israel. Go five countries away and go preach the gospel to that people. And I have not spent enough time on this. It's, it's always a, a back burner focus of mine, but it never comes to the pulpit enough But we need to be focused on foreign missions. We're supporting folks uh, in Bogota, for example, that are doing good work for the gospel. And we need to be in prayer for them, writing to them, finding out what they need, uh, how we can pray for them. Uh, Be be bringing uh, prayer calendars of the persecuted church uh, before your family as you pray. Uh, All kinds of ways that we can focus on the church worldwide uh, and uh, how the gospel is being brought to them. That's the commission here from God to Jonah. Uh, And Jonah says no. And then the whole rest of the story is about how God gets that mission done anyway. It's a missions book. So uh, think missions. And when we think missions, we often think in terms of uh, mission boards, missionary training, uh, translation, learning a new language, a new culture, and all these things. But we also need to focus, of course, on the people that are there. Those who are being sent to, what are they like? We, we get something of an example here with the sailors, we'll look at that in a moment. These are idolatrous people. Uh, and throughout uh, church history, God has sent uh, missionaries, some of them we prayed for a week or two ago. Boniface go, goes to a pagan people in, in um, the Netherlands, in Germany. He's, they're, they're ministering to people who have no clue about God who do barbaric, idolatrous things, right? Why does God send us, call us to such people? You know, think today, some trivial examples. You know, sometimes they've got their hair painted five different colors. They've got rings from every lobe there is. They've got tattoos everywhere, right? Pro-abortion advocates, or maybe they shrug at abortion. How can people think this way? Right? We live in a very polarized time, uh, politically, and it and it's, bleeds over into our spiritual thinking too, where, where we get so set against these folks, right? God calls us to them. So, of course, we need to oppose their worldview, uh, but we're also called to persuade and to minister to them. Too often we get thinking, how can those people live like that? How can they think like that? Surely God doesn't want me to deal with them. And that's where we go wrong. No, we're called to deal with them. God's concerned for all mankind. We want to only deal with a certain kind of person. But God may send us anywhere. God may bring anyone to us. And we need to be prepared for that. We'll look at that more. I've got a, today I've got an application uh, time at the end where we'll kind of recap each point. That's point number one, uh, God's call to us. Uh, Jonah's response, of course, Jonah runs from God. And maybe it's a bit more understandable now, right? If you think, he knows what these Ninevites are like. He knows the threat they are to Israel's way of life, quote-unquote, besides their opposition to the God of the Bible. Jonah knows this kind of person. And he says, uh-uh, not doing it. And he runs from God, far and hard. He goes down to Joppa. There's a theme of down here. As I read this to my family last night, one of my uh, teenagers said, Ah, Jonah's going down. (laughs) Exactly. We have that saying, he's going down. He goes, I forget if it's three or four or five times that, that down is said or referenced. He goes down to Joppa. That's just a topographical thing, right? He's going down to the sea from the higher altitude of wherever he was. But then he goes below the deck of the ship. He's hiding from others too, by the way. He's paying a ticket to get to Tarshish. We don't know where it is. We assume Spain. Most people say it's somewhere Spain ways. So it's the furthest end of the Mediterranean, right? If you got Israel on the easternmost side, they're going way west, far, far away, the other direction. But it isn't so easy to run from God. And that's one of the messages of the book. Uh, Jim Boyce puts it well. He says, "When you run away from the Lord, you're never going to get to where you're going, and you're always going to pay your own fare." And that's what Jonah does. And then Boyce goes on. On the other hand, when you go to the Lord, when you go His way, you will get to where you're going, and He'll pay your fare for you. Interesting little uh, phrase. Uh, In another way, uh, running away from God, God lets him go. He's on the boat. Uh, Virgil says it, he says the road to hell is easy. Uh, God doesn't stop the world when we sin, when we say no to Him. He lets us go for a time. Uh, Now, why Jonah does this, we're going to save for later. That's one of the main themes of the book, uh, but not for this chapter. So Jonah's no, one lesson to learn here is that Jonah's no will not stop God's purposes. Right? That verse 3 is not the end of the book, right? And and many people want to make that their life story. They say, well, I I grew up in church. God was telling me to do this, and I just said no and left. And now I'm doing my own thing, and I'm having a great life, is how they write their story. But that's not really how their story's going, right? They're they're in chapter 1, verse 3 of their story. There's a lot more coming. A lot more that God is going to do in dealing with them. Our no to God does not stop God's purposes. So, I like the story of Esther in this regard. In Esther, Mordecai's faith is very great. Remember Esther, how they're on the verge of the worldwide destruction of the Jews? Empire-wide, perhaps I should say. Haman has gotten the inner ear of the king. He's got this plan. And Esther is placed in the palace to speak for the Jews and to stop it. And we need to reread our familiar stories because perhaps you don't remember, but she balks. And she says, if I do that, my life is at risk. And she takes three days to think about it. <laughs> she, we, we put these saints on a pedestal and say, oh, wasn't Esther brave and great? She balked and she's like, I don't know if I can, I don't know if that's the right thing for me to do. And Mordecai says to her, what does he say? Does Mordecai say, look, if you don't do this, we're all doomed? That's not what Mordecai says to Esther. And we often think that way also in our uh, political oppositions and, and fighting for the Lord's ways in the public square. That's often how we think. That's not what Mordecai says at all. Mordecai says, if you don't do this, salvation will come from somewhere else. But you and your house won't survive. So Mordecai says, God's going to save us somehow. His ways will be done. But if you say no to him, that's going to be bad for you, but it's not going to stop God's salvation. Fascinating. So Jonah's no will not stop God's purposes. We see that in Jonah. We see it in Esther, many places. God sends a storm, verse 4, finally getting to verse 4. So, God's going to frustrate our efforts to reject him, right? He hurls a great wind upon the sea. Uh, that wording is interesting. We'll come back to it. Remember the word "hurled," that comes up a few times, and it's kind of the outline of the chapter. Uh, so, uh, God throws this wind, a storm at the sea, uh, frustrating our efforts to reject him. And, and then we come to verse 5, and now think of this. Verses 5 to the end of our text is all kind of one story. Right, you've, My outline basically is, well, you got the first two verses where God calls Jonah. you got verse 3 where Jonah says no. And then you've got verse 4 where God brings the storm. But then verse 5 to 16, 11 verses, is all about the sailors, the mariners and Jonah, and their response. Most of this text, quantity-wise, is about the sailors, and Jonah's full of surprises like this. We, we always think of Jonah and the whale, right? Word association. Quick, what do you think of when you hear Jonah? Whale, <laughs> right? Jonah's about way more than the whale. And it's not a whale anyway. It's a fish. We'll get to that. But um, there's only two verses in Jonah about the fish. Very short verses, very much in a sigh. Jonah's not about the fish. Jonah's about the sailors. And Jonah's about the people of Nineveh. Some of whom are from are probably on this boat. Most of this text is about the sailors. That's a clue to what's going on. It's true today, too. You know, you, The things that you go on and on about, that you don't stop talking about, the topics you keep coming back to, that's what's really important to you. Every now and then I see that on Facebook. I don't know about you, you but maybe you have certain friends who just post about one topic or two topics, and they're, they're always coming back to this one issue. It's like, oh, there they go again. right? That's really important to them. Positive or negative doesn't matter right now. That, that's important to them because they keep going on and on about it. Right? This is God's word. Think about this minute. This is not just a t- story that Jonah told. So we learn from this that these sailors are pretty important to God. He can't stop talking about them. He, he goes on and on and on. And again, the only thing we think of when we hear the name Jonah is is the whale. God wants us focused on these sailors. Again, they're, they're Nineveh types, these sailors. Tattooed, rough language, looking for wine, women, and song when they get to port. Those kind of people. Jonah tries to avoid them. He goes down in the hold of the ship and tries to go to sleep. He does go to sleep. Jonah tries to avoid them, God won't stop talking about them. and That's that's part of the conviction in the book of Jonah for us. Jesus came in His ministry on earth and the same kind of thing happened. We read it in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus says the same thing to the Pharisees, the, the tax collectors, the sinners, the Nineveh types, the sailor types come and sit with Jesus. And the religious guys are upset. Why? Why is he eating with them? What is the deal? Well, oh, because it's the sick who need a doctor. Jesus is the great physician. They're the ones who are sick. There's big irony there, of course, you realize. The Pharisees are also as sick as the tax collectors and sinners. They need a doctor, too. They just don't realize it. Right? So a lot of irony in there. Anyway, these sailors are spiritually sick. They're superstitious. They're pagan. They need God. But Jonah wants nothing to do with them. And in Jesus' day, it's the same. The churchgoers are repulsed that Jesus would associate with them. Well, notice, it's Jonah who has put them on a sinking ship. Right? He admits it later. This is, the storm is because of me. I, I'm running away from God. This is my fault. Jonah admits that. The ship and the storm here is a picture of the whole world and our predicament. The ship is the world with believers and unbelievers in it. The storm is God bringing curses and frustrations to the world because of our fall into sin. The sailors do a commendable job trying to solve the world's problems. You know, our our secular politicians and thinkers and builders... We're doing the best we can to solve life's problems. But the storm is beyond our fixing. We, we need to call on God. We need His grace. Right? I don't know if you know the name Jacques Ellul. He's a, a French uh, thinker, writer from a few decades ago. Kind of similar to Francis Schaeffer. Uh, he has an interesting thought on this. He says, The storm is unleashed because of the unfaithfulness of the church and Christians. There's a storm raging in our culture, but many Christians are sleeping or ignoring the whole thing. And in some ways, the church is the primary culprit. We are in this state, uh, partly, of course, because of the rebellion of each sinful heart. We may not deny that. But it's also because the church has not faithfully taught the world God's ways in his word. And so, uh, there we have the sailors in this storm. And yet... God uses them to work on Jonah's sanctification. All right? It's deeply ironic that the pagan captain of the ship has to come to Jonah, who's sleeping, and tell him, Wake up, call on your God. <laughs> right? The pagan has to tell the, the believer what to do. These are the very things that Jonah refused to do before the storm. Jonah has put the sailors in this tight spot for refusing to preach repentance to seafaring Nineveh. So now Jonah is put in a situation of preaching to the sailors at their own insistence. Right? They cast lots. It's Jonah's fault. So with this barrage of questions, who, who are you? What's, what's going on? Who? So there's the opportunity. And that, and this isn't just an opportunity. This is like a captive preaching session. Right? You must tell us what's going on. So, Jonah is put in this situation. Now, he gives good testimony of who God is, verse 9, and he points out that this God made the sea and the land, which is one reason the sailors are more afraid. They've probably heard of the God of Israel and his claims, and and so they're afraid. Uh, But notice that Jonah avoids a question Why did you flee your God? And he skips that, and instead he answers their next one. What what should we do to you? Right? Well, Throw me into the sea. The word hurled again, by the way. So uh, pause here and consider. I think we're going to see Jonah in heaven. That's a speculation of mine. I think he's a a believer. Based on chapters 2 and 3 especially. Uh, We'll come to those. But chapters 1 and 4 really give us pause. (laughs) Will we see Jonah in heaven? He says no to God. He runs away from Him. He's mad at the end of the book that, Jonah, that Nineveh is saved? Is this really a believer? So there's a little bit of ambiguity. Here, before these sailors, Jonah could have repented before them to God, and he doesn't. He doesn't. He could have told them to turn the boat around and head for Nineveh. I think they would have listened at that point. Instead, Jonah here opts for death rather than repentance whoa that's that's strongly worded I know there's a few possible other interpretations I I grant but Jonah has gone down to Joppa down into the sea down below deck now he's going to go down underwater and die there he's going to do that rather than stop running from God this book starts to really reflect the awfulness and, and the reality of our re- rebellion, the depth of our rebellion against God. Can Christians act so badly? I think the answer, if you look to the life of David, Elijah, Abraham, the answer is yes. There are times when we get in those situations. David kills Uriah and he covers it up for months, right? Right? Elijah runs away from uh, Jezebel and he prays to God, let me die. We have those moments of such deep discouragement. So we need to acknowledge that, admit that, I I think. Uh, But again, those are parts of the downs and the ups of the Christian life. Jonah has uh, better moments and his life generally seems to be one of faithfulness in the rest of the book. But the sailors in this incident... The sailors are better than Jonah. Jonah is willing to let all Nineveh die under God's judgment. I'm not going to go preach to them. Let them die. They deserve it. That's kind of Jonah's attitude. We'll see that later in the text. The sailors are not willing to let one foreigner die. Jonah. He says, throw me into the sea. They say, no, we'll row a little longer. They try a bit harder to save themselves. The sailors are not willing to let one foreigner die, even though it's starting to look like Jonah richly deserves it. (laughs) They're not willing to let him perish. They fight the storm a little longer. They're going under, though. So they pray to God, a model prayer. These sailors are starting to become pious, realize, instead of pagan. They pray to God. As soon as they throw Jonah over, the storm stops. The sailors fear God. That point is, is given uh, there in the text in verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord. At first, there's three fears in there. I don't have them marked out real clearly. First, they fear the storm. Then they fear that Jonah uh, was a worshiper of this God. They're afraid when they hear that Jonah worships the God who made the sea. Now, verse 16, they fear God himself. So there's our main point. God is accomplishing his purpose of saving sinners while Jonah is trying his hardest to avoid saving them. (laughs) Jonah is trying his hardest to do the opposite of what God wants done. And God gets it done anyway. It's amazing. So, you think of the depth of uh, the rebellion and obstinacy that we can give to God as his people. Even with all of that, Israel wandering in the desert for 40 years, right? Tempting God 10 times. There's another good example. That doesn't stop God from bringing him into the promised land eventually. God won't be stopped in that way. So Jonah would rather drown. But while Jonah is drowning, the sailors convert to faith in God. Amazing irony. So God here uses an act of disobedience by his people to save sinners. That's where we need to start looking at Jesus in this text. Right. This is what God did when Jesus stood trial before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin's disobedience in rejecting Jesus was the salvation of the world. God uses acts of immense cruelty like that to bring such blessing. Now, just quickly on the other side here, just to qualify. All of this doesn't excuse the disobedience, of course. We know this. It was still wrong for Jonah to run from God. We may not be careless about avoiding sin and evil and just rely on God to sort it all out for us. No, we need to strive for obedience. But it's part of the point of mercy. When we do fail, when we fail deeply, when we fail extensively, it's not going to stop God. His mercy is greater. So the main point is that God saves sinners, even through the disobedience of the Sanhedrin, through the disobedience of Jonah, God is going to see the nations come to Him, no matter how sinful they are, no matter how unfaithful the church looks to us. God is greater. So that's uh, a walk through the text. Now, uh, let's apply first first, uh, the gospel in the word hurl, which is the strangest phrase I've ever used, I think. But we think of a certain physical reaction with the word "hurl." It's nothing like that. The ESV, I think, doesn't know our English as well as our American English as well as we do. So maybe they wouldn't have used the word "hurl," throw, cast, whatever other word you want to use. But I'm using the ESV this morning, and you have "hurl" first in verse four, when God hurls the wind on the sea. That's point one of the gospel, right? God, uh, God's wrath against our sin, right? Jonah rebels against God, says no to him. God's response uh, against our sin is anger, and the storm represents that. The, the second point of the gospel in the word hurl is the sailors hurl the cargo overboard. Uh, that's verse 5, very next verse. And this is when we try to save ourselves from our sin. Right? Adam and Eve make fig leaves. They try to make their own coverings. The sailors here are trying to save themselves from the storm. Uh, The third use of the word hurl is when they hurl Jonah into the sea. This is verse 15. They pick him up and hurl him into the sea. That's the third point of the gospel uh, here in hurl. An acceptable sacrifice is given when the sailors hurl Jonah into the sea. Jonah is a faint picture of Jesus there. Both Jesus on the cross, Jonah going into the sea, both satisfy the wrath of God, in a sense. With Jonah, God's making the arbitrary connection for the sailors, right? There's no actual atonement or payment going on. We get that. But, but, but there's a picture there for us to see. The sailors certainly see it, and they believe in God. So uh, there you have the gospel. Now, just a few points of application before we close. Uh, first, we have to realize, <laughs> you and I, we have turned against God. Whether you're like Jonah or like the sailors and the Ninevites, we've turned against God. When we focus on how much worse sinners they are than us, it's very likely we haven't repented well ourselves yet. Even if we're uh, like Jonah, like we're part of, even if we're uh, part of God's covenant people like Jonah, we have to be careful uh, not to think in those, well, they're worse, so I don't have to kind of ways, right? God says, Jesus says this, when the tower falls on some, Jesus says, do you think they were worse sinners? Unless you repent, you'll likewise perish. Jesus makes the point there, when it comes to offending God, there's no comparisons like that. We've all offended him. Second, uh, we both try, you and I, we try the wrong things to fix our sin problem, and uh, again, I'm preaching to myself here as much as to you. I hope you know that on a personal level. This isn't something where I see myself as, yeah, I'm doing this fine, but you guys, you've got to fix this. Uh, I am as uh, struggle with this as much as the next person. We try the wrong things to fix our sin problem. These soldiers are very competent, but they're spitting in the wind to try to save themselves from God's storm. It's not going to happen. Right? And even after Jonah tells them that it's him, it's my fault, God's doing this to us because of me, even when they still know what the right sacrifice is, when they fear God, they still try to fix it themselves. I think that's a, that's a picture of us sometimes too. Right? We know the right answer. Jesus died on the cross to take our sins away. But we still fall back on, well, if I do this this week, then God will like me more. We have to watch out for that. We don't, we don't earn our salvation that way. Jonah himself, I think, is another picture of this, and the extreme picture of trying the wrong thing to fix our sin problem. Right? I think Jonah knows repentance for him means preaching to the sailors, asking them to turn the boat around or let him off at the next stop so he can go to Nineveh. But no, Jonah despairs and would rather die. That's definitely trying the wrong thing to fix your problem. Right? As I think um, Doug Wilson likes to say there's, there's no problem that you haven't created in your sin that you can't make worse by sinning more. <laughs> you can make it worse, but unless you repent, it, it's going to get worse. We try the wrong things to fix our sin problem. And again, I'm preaching to myself here as much as anyone else. I rely often on my Bible reading, my obedience if I've worked hard enough and long enough for God to love me. That's what I tend to do. When the only reason that he loves me is because of what Jesus did to pay for my sins. So we try the wrong things to fix our sin problem. Third point of application. So in response, we need to cast ourselves on Jesus. Just as they throw Jonah in the sea. Think of the Think of the hope, maybe some of, of the desperation in that act, right? They have tried everything to save themselves from this storm. But now they believe Jonah, they pray to God, we, we, and we throw him into the sea. Think of the, I don't know, the, there's just a, 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 a Hail Mary, last stand, you know, remember, remember the Alamo kind of atmosphere to that action. This is all we've got left. And it's true. We need to cast ourselves on Jesus because he is all we have left. We all need to die with Christ and be raised with Christ. And that's what happens to Jonah. He, I don't know. The text is a little ambiguous. But it seems like he isn't quite at the point of faith yet. I think that's next week. But Jonah is now going down in the water. Drowning. We need to cast ourselves on Jesus. Fourth point of application. Uh, Just three more short ones and I'm done. Fourth, God is going to call you and me to some things that we don't want to do. He's going to call you and me to go through situations and circumstances that we don't want to go through. That's what he does with Jonah. For Jonah, it's going to Nineveh with the gospel. For you, it it may be a conflict with a co-worker or a neighbor. It may be a disease or death of a family member. Maybe kids, maybe it's a brother or sister that you have a hard time getting along with. Why Why does that happen to us? Maybe it's a job that you have to have for a while that you really don't like. Whatever it is, God's going to call you to some things you don't want to do or to go through. That's what he does with Jonah. And we see in Jonah a realistic picture of how we often respond. We're angry. We say no. We run away. Try to hide from God. These are all pictures of unbelief. And we need to believe God is doing what is good for us. Fifth point is that saying no to God always leads to trouble. right? We we make it worse. God gives us a hardship... And we make it worse by responding out of uh, lack of faith. Uh, favorite line from John Wayne, a uh, guy from uh, the church in Virginia where I pastored used this a lot. John Wayne said, life is tough. It's tougher when you're stupid. It's a great line. And, and you can put a, you know, that, that's a lesson here from Jonah. God gave, less, God gave Jonah something tough to do. And he made it, tougher, because he was stupid. That's Jonah, and, and it's true for us, too. Now, it's generally true the other way, as well. Obeying God will usually lead to blessing, to things going better. You have to be careful not to make too much of that principle, right? There are exceptions to, to that principle, and they're right in the Bible, right? The, the psalmist says, why do the wicked prosper? There are times we see the wicked prospering, and there are times, you know, we see Job Suffering, And what did he do? So there's exceptions to that rule. I think one of the keys here is to pay attention to your life uh, more, to to figure out God's providence, Uh, less looking at the providence and the lives of others, right? We should spend more time considering how God's shaping us, less time judging others when they have hard times. That's like Aslan says a few times in Narnia, hey, I'm telling you your story. I'm not telling you their story. So when others go through hard times, sometimes that, that's a temptation for us. We say, ah, we've got something against them. right?" Ah, see? That's why. right? Now, less of that, more of the, the what is God trying to teach me as I go through my hardship? So we consider our, our lives today. Is there some way that you're not going where God wants you to go? Is there some way you're not doing what God wants you to do? That's part of what Jonah is asking of us. God, uh, saying no to God always leads to trouble. And the last point, God wants us to deal with unbelievers. This is one of the biggest points of the text, and it's one of the most challenging to me personally, uh, I think possibly to us as a congregation as well. We we may not all be called to preach. We're not all called to go live in Nineveh. Uh, I realize this. Many of us are in a life stage of raising little ones, where more sheltering from the seedier elements is very appropriate, right? But recall in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul found it absurd that we would try never to associate with unbelievers and their sin. He found it absurd. And yet I think much of the evangelical world is trying to do just that. No, God wants us to deal with unbelievers. We need to separate ourselves from people in the church who call themselves Christians and then want to redefine their sin and insist that others be okay with it. No. But God deliberately leaves his people in the world to be a light for those in darkness, to bring them in, to hear the message. God wants us to deal with unbelievers in that way. It's a challenging task. Perhaps we need to learn more about that. But that'll be for another day. This is Jonah chapter 1. When we say no to God, God continues to call us, continues to correct us, and he'll see his purpose accomplished. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that when we think of obeying you, uh, we too often think of only avoiding certain behavior. But there, is, uh, there are many sins of omission, things we've left undone. We have not gone to the stranger, the foreigner, in love and compassion with your gospel truth. We have not received from your hand with faith whatever you send us. Or we ask that you would change us in these ways. Lead us by your spirit in wisdom how to respond in faith to hardship, how to respond in faith to your call, your commission, to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We thank you for your mercy and your patience with us. Uh, You were so patient with Jonah in the face of his extensive and obstinate refusal to do what you said. Lord, help us not to be like that, but we thank you that you've been patient with us when we have looked like that in the past. We thank you for your great compassion and mercy to us. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, the ever-living Word. 17 first. Genesis 17, verse 4, and then 9 God says to Abraham, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, with you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. While we look at Jonah uh, in this next three weeks, we're going to do a separate short series on what communion is all about. So we start with Abraham. God makes a covenant with him and gives him a sign of it. That's a foundational text as we try to understand what a sacrament is. That sign is a sacrament. The sacrament is a sign. So if you think of a sign, think of a road sign. that says Detroit, 30 miles. Something like that. The sign isn't the city, right? But it is connected to the city. And when we celebrate the sign of communion, you're meant to see the reality that it points to. It's very easy for us to lose sight of the eternal city that we are headed for. The kingdom of God coming to earth. It's easy for us to lose sight of it. So God gives us a signpost every week along the way, but our road signs are are square and green, right? And this weird shape, easy reading that way. Uh, Not much like the actual cities that they're pointing to, right? Communion, baptism, sacraments—they're signposts that are shaped something like the realities behind them. The family of God is fed by the Father fueled by faith, gifted to us by the Spirit. That's what's happening at the Lord's table. And that's what is happening in reality in the kingdom of God. The sign is shaped like the reality. So there's much to learn from the sacraments. We'll consider more in coming weeks. But let's receive Christ and rest on Him alone for our salvation today. The body of Christ broken for you.